I always imagine a panic attack like a, a petulant child, a toddler that's about to have a tantrum. And I know this because my kids can kick off. And it's like once they've gone and once like they have gone past the point of return, you just got to let them go because there's nothing you can do. When they are in the middle of Tesco and they are absolutely going for it, hell for leather, in that moment, all you can do is just make sure they're safe and ride it out. Literally, there's nothing else you can do because the more you grapple with them, the more you pick them up and try and pull them away, the worse it's going to get for everyone involved. You have to just surrender yourself to it for that moment. Hi, Hurt to Healing listeners, and welcome back to season four with me, Pandora Morris. I can't believe it's been nearly a year since I started having these incredibly raw and honest conversations with wonderful guests from all walks of life about their own invisible mental health struggles. Those of you that have been here since the start will know that I myself have struggled with my mental health for many years and it was only recently that I started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to start this podcast to create a safe space where I could try and help some of you on your own healing journeys. This season is full of more fantastic conversations and I hope that hearing these will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. I am honoured to have the remarkable Anna Williamson join us for today's episode. Anna is not only a well-known TV presenter, but also a celebrity dating agent, lending her expertise to help people find love. Beyond her successful career in the public eye, Anna is a passionate campaigner for mental health and well-being. During our conversation, Anna candidly shares her journey through anxiety, shedding light on common symptoms and providing invaluable recommendations for those facing similar challenges. She delves into the world of panic attacks, offering insights on their causes and manageable strategies. Anna also explores the potential for individuals with mental health issues to maintain healthy, balanced relationships and emphasizes the vital role of communication within such partnerships. We discuss the complexities of dating while struggling with mental health issues, and she offers her advice for building self-confidence and navigating the dating world. Anna's wisdom extends to the realm of loneliness and its connection to anxiety, providing guidance for those who may be experiencing both. I'd love to ask you what the difference between being anxious and suffering with an anxiety disorder is in your opinion. Yeah, so I come at this from a very well publicized history of mental illness myself. And it's taken me a good 16 years really to be able to feel okay, you know, and not embarrassed or even tiny, tiny embarrassed to even say that because I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder when I was 26. And it is horrible. And I think it's a great question because a lot of people I think, trivialize an anxiety disorder. And they all kind of go, oh, God, it's just, oh, someone's got anxiety. The difference between, and I can speak from personal experience, we all need anxiety. We need to get anxious. It is an inbuilt part of our brains that's evolutionary from caveman days. You know, if we didn't have, you know, it's, it's nature's panic button. So we naturally will feel anxious about events in our lives, you know, doing a work presentation, getting married, going out on a date, you know, whatever it may be, getting on a plane, you know. It's perfectly normal to experience feelings of anxiety because that is our body telling us that there may be danger around the corner. I need to be aware. I just need to be on on slightly more alert than I would perhaps be if I'm lying in the bath drinking a cup of tea. 
The difference with an anxiety disorder, which I have, is where your quality of life is very much affected and limited by experiencing anxiety and it is continual. Typically with a disorder, I think you have to have it for beyond six months for it to become a thing, as in labelled as a thing. Some people love a label, some people hate a label. For me, I found it actually really cathartic because I genuinely thought I was going out of my mind. I genuinely thought I was very mentally sick because I didn't understand what my brain was doing and my mind was doing. It's a very lonely place to be uh, and a very erratic place to be with an anxiety disorder. But a disorder is something that, yeah, is characterised as something that comes on gradually, but is something that is present and can't be quick fixed. You know, anxiety will come and go as in normal everyday, day-to-day anxiety, which is a good thing. It's normal and natural and we need it to survive. An anxiety disorder is when it starts to limit your quality of life and you stop doing things that you perhaps once did because the disorder's taken over and it's limiting you in some way. So it's a very long-winded way of explaining the differences. No, it's not at all, because I think, as you said, quite often it's trivialized and it's overused, the word anxiety. And I think particularly with what we're going through at the moment, which is in some instances is an overpathologization of mental health, means a lot of people say, oh, I have anxiety. Whereas I think what we want to make clear and what you've done so brilliantly and eloquently in your description is that there is a very big difference between just having daily anxieties, which are normal and essential for survival versus actually being diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that as well. And I think you're absolutely right. In this day and age in particular, I think the differentiation is really important because I think, whereas it's brilliant that we're talking about mental health so much more than we ever have done, and I'm part of that crusade, I do think that often comes with that, the light and the shade, then people can then go, oh, what celebrities now are just jumping on the bandwagon or every kid's got anxiety. And then what that does is push the people that really do have, that's not even trivialising the low-level anxiety because that's still a thing. You're still allowed to feel that and feel a bit you know, rubbish around that. But it does have the dangerous side effect of pushing people that really are struggling that have an actual real issue into silence and shame and embarrassment which I know only too well how that can feel and even now like you know you might I mean I'm quite hardy I'm very thick-skinned if you listen to my podcast Luana you know I will always often talk about my anxiety and mental health but I can talk about it in a safe space and I guess in a weird way because I'm so used to it I sort of feel I have permission to take you know, the mick out of myself with it. But I also know that people can, and I'm sure I roll at me and go, oh God, you know, she's banging on about her anxiety. And the reason why I do is because I experience day-to-day anxiety as I should, normal levels of anxiety. Oh, I've got a work meeting. I'm coming on this podcast. I hope I don't sound like a complete idiot. You know, I've got my child's parents consultation tonight. You know, I hope that's going to be okay. That's normal. That's fine. But I, I know what it's like to live with an anxiety disorder and when that rages. And sometimes my anxiety disorder can start to spiral if I don't listen to the triggers myself. I know what my triggers are, which are typically alcohol, too much of it, caffeine, lack of sleep, too much on my plate with work, starting to people please, and too much digital exposure like screens. I know I need to strip back. And but if my anxiety disorder takes over, it's a whole new ball game. It's like imagine anxiety being like a little pea having an anxiety disorder when it starts to take hold is like literally being in the middle, you know, the sides of the Royal Albert Hall. It's overwhelming, all-consuming. It's terrifying. You don't really 
know your own mind and you can't well this is for me anyway it can, it can characterize in many different ways but I can't think straight I'm permanently worried about everything there's a feeling of dread just around me I get quite paranoid I struggle to eat I struggle to sleep and I struggle to really be a competent human being so that's very different to just having I'm a bit nervous about today no absolutely and I completely relate because I think with my OCD when I know that a particular exposure is coming up or something triggers me again I go into that spiral and it's just knowing what your saturation point is and I think it's not letting that cup spill over and sometimes it can be too full and as you say you know you need to rein things back in because very very quickly you can spiral and soon life becomes just a matter of surviving as opposed to living and you're just literally in this cave and don't you find as well then with that, I think that's such an important point. And what I say to people is catching that cup before it spills over. And, you know, if I knew back then when I, you know, had my mental breakdown, my first one, I had two, I had another one after I had my son with post-sales anxiety. If I'd known now to be, oh my God, all the signs and the symptoms and the triggers were all there, you know, and, and my body and my brain was screaming for me to stop, to hit the, the pause button and I ignored it. And I continued. And I think in this world, though, and I think particularly, you know, where we are that like, it's great. We're talking about mental health so much more. There seems to be a lot more understanding and compassion around it and certain curiosity. But I still think that we don't often, I think we, I'm generalizing, but as a nation don't really take on board the importance of pace and time and not measuring ourselves against another person to knowing how big our cup is. My cup, your cup, next person's cup will be a very different size to what you can fit into it and what you can take. And I think the problem we get is we often generalize that everyone has the same cup. I'm loving the cup analogy today. And it's like, well, so-and-so can do a 12-hour shift and go out and get ratted with their colleagues and do four hours sleep. So why can't I? Because guess what? That's how they can function. And that clearly doesn't affect them in a negative way. But guess what? I've learned with me over the years, and it's a very boring, boring thing. But guess what? It is what it is. And it's me and I unapologetically now say it and do it. So if that means that I am a bit of a boring Sally and I'm like, I'm getting the last train home, guess what? That's it. And I think for me, it's about having that confidence of being able to articulate that without any embarrassment. And if the people you are with give you any shame for that, perhaps you need to think those people around you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think I remember the first time a friend, which was actually relatively recently, said to me, you do you. Don't be ashamed about it. And you just put in your bottom line rules and will like, accommodate them. And I remember being so relieved because I think particularly in this day and age where, like, as you say, we're all made to feel like we should be doing everything and we should be juggling 10 balls at once, whereas some of us can only juggle two or three and that's okay. But it's not having that cloud of shame and judgment that so many of us I think particularly those of us with mental health conditions can so often like drag around all the time and it's letting go of that and just being okay it's like okay if I have to get the last train home that's great because I'm going to feel fantastic tomorrow morning and I'm then not going to spiral right and I think that's it it's not people pleasing and you know sure we all want to be a good friend a good colleague a good partner a good mum in my case and you really you do have to sort of be selfish in that way to know well it's not even being selfish it's just having a good level of self-confidence and self-esteem to know that really you are the one that matters because and actually it's, it, for me it actually became weirdly a lot easier when I became a mom I've got a seven-year-old and nearly four-year-old because I realized when I spiraled into a terrible post depression and anxiety after I had my son 
And if mummy's not well, no one's going to be functioning, you know. And it really did make me pull my socks up to, you know, nothing can slap you more in the face of clarity of what you need to be doing than two little human beings that need to be kept alive by you. Me, you know, making excuses, and you know, that ain't going to cut it anymore, you know. I need to be well. So if that means I'm, I've got to do me, then that, for them, then, you know, it all works in one big happy dysfunctional circle. But I always say me, me first selfishly but because if I'm the best then everyone in my family gets the best from me exactly and it goes back to that analogy of you've always got to put on your own oxygen mask first it is so true yeah how do your anxious thoughts tend to manifest do you always tend to fixate on certain things or do you catastrophize I tend to catastrophize kind of all of it actually if I'm honest with you so my main triggers are around sleep and that's when I first, so when I was diagnosed with general anxiety disorder, also panic disorder, because panic attacks were something that were recurrent, but they were very much linked to sleep. And I think, you know, a lot of us can relate to the fact that the middle of the night can be the latest time ever. Like you think, God, is there anyone else alive in this world? You know, if you're awake at two, three o'clock in the morning, but sleep is a huge trigger of mine and having to get up at a specific time early so my anxious thoughts can catastrophize and spiral very quickly around that. And I've done a lot of work over the years to counteract that and to get into a much healthier headspace so the anxiety doesn't take hold. And then eventually what would happen is that those anxious thoughts would then culminate in a massive panic attack, which is highly unhelpful because then guess what happens? You start to avoid having to do the jobs that require you to get up early in the morning. And for me, typically that's live TV and then it starts to spiral. So then you stop doing the thing that you love because the anxiety is taking over. And that that's an anxiety disorder. When you start changing your life to avoid the causes, you know, and the symptoms. So sleep is a massive one for me. But funnily enough, like I'm a big fan of sort of anchoring and like we talk about triggered, like in a negative way, but also trigger words in a positive way. Teach yourself your trigger words that, that work well for you. And for me, you know, the whole, oh my gosh, I'm not going to get to sleep. I'm not going to get to sleep. If I don't get to sleep, I'm only going to get five hours sleep. And then I'm not going to, you know, all that starts to reverberate and my brain is just going. So I do have very good sleep routines around that. But actually one of the best things that I can tell myself, which actually I used to get my mum, funnily enough, to tell me, she was always kind of my antidote. And I used to call her and go, mum, I need help. I need a crutch. And she'd know exactly what to say because I taught her. And that's the thing we can teach our loved ones to help us in those moments. And all she had to say was, it doesn't matter if you can't sleep, you'll sleep another time. And it sounds so simple and so silly, but it was so effective. And it was like, I needed someone to give me that reality and that permission. Just rest, just close your eyes. And you will function because you have functioned before. This is what I tell myself now. I'm like, if I don't sleep, it doesn't matter because I will probably want to sleep at another time in the day. And I will allow myself to do that when I'm feeling more naturally tired. My body will allow me to. And just having those sort of positive phrases and permissions, I find can really pull you down from having a terrible anxiety attack or panic attack. And another one for me is I'm, it's developed actually when I was very heavily pregnant with my son. It's an annoying one, which I'm, I'm grappling with still, but we, I'm, I'm winning the fight. But I used to travel, well, I still do, you know, but more so before kids, travel the world, you know, aeroplanes. I used to live in London for 20 years. So tubes, trains, you name it, always doing it, you know, sardines, didn't think anything of it. And then when I was pregnant with my son, I got caught up in a, in a tube situation where I was trapped for a while in, in London Underground. 
and there planted the phobia and the fear of it happening again. So I became avoidant of going back on London Undergrounds. And guess what happens when you start to avoid something? It starts to branch out a little bit more and your brain tells you, oh, hang on a minute, isn't being in an aeroplane a little bit, a little bit like being in a tube? Uh, guess what? I'm just going to be a pain in the ass and I'm going to transfer that fear and that anxiety and phobia onto an aeroplane. And hey, let's do it on a train as well. Why not? Let's do it in a traffic jam on the M25 when you can't escape. And I guess, you know, if we're talking phobias, it's, it's claustrophobia, the fear of being trapped. But I know myself, you know, those anxiety triggers. But I also know very well, but you have to push through those fears, which I do. Is it slightly different to an anxiety disorder? These are more sort of phobic responses, but it's because I'm very high, I'm high alert a lot with my anxiety disorder. Anything can really trigger it and bring it back. But for me, it's about being realistic, baby steps. Like I'm delighted to say I can now travel on trains again and airplanes, tubes. I'm getting there. We're testing out the Elizabeth line, but I know I will get there because I also tell myself, like with the sleep, like with being on a train, and I know this is a really common one, I get a lot of people on my Instagram saying, oh my God, I can feel seen, I feel so relate. But I always tell yourself, guess what? You got through the thing and evidence tells you that happened because guess what? Here I am talking to you on my podcast. So the, what's the worst fear? The worst fear, that's what you should always ask yourself. What is my worst fear in the situation with sleep? That I won't sleep and I'll make a tit of myself on live telly. Okay, so what? You know, is anyone going to die? No, there's a lot bigger problems in this world. Same with the tube, you know. Oh my God, the fear is I won't get out. Guess what? You did and you have and you probably will again. So it's just pulling yourself down from those very irrational thoughts, which I find really useful. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think I've spoken before on the podcast about writing scripts and with OCD, a lot of it is treatment for phobias. And you write out the worst case scenario and you actually imagine yourself, say, stuck on a tube. And okay, right, so what's going to happen? I'm going to feel awful. I can feel myself sweating. And then you slowly like, immunize yourself almost to the phobia and you do have to walk through the fire because ultimately as you so rightly identified the second you give into the phobia it just morphs and it bleeds into everything and the more traction you give it the more it will take and it's so just insidious and it becomes a real problem and it's something that I think a lot more people than we know about grapple with because people hide it through shame really. I think you're spot on with that. And I think people do. And I get it. I get why people do. Not all people are like me, a massive gob, and found the empowerment of talking about my experiences purely because I care about people. And I'm also, I do have a high level of confidence, I think, and self-esteem in, in that way. But what I know is that most people have their thing you know, have a thing. Like I was even out the other night with a friend of mine who I would deem, you know, very, they're very confident and, you know, kind of, I think would almost even scoff at people probably that, you know, had anxiety, you know, they kind of, oh God, someone else banging on about mental health, you know, they're kind of that kind of person. We all know them, let's be honest, you know, and that's fine. That's cool. Uh, you know, whatever, you know, it's not me. I'm the opposite of that. I'm like, thank you. Yeah, well, that's not helpful. But I happened to notice that we were somewhere and she didn't get in a lift. And suddenly went, I'm going to get this. And I was like, oh, okay. And suddenly got in the lift. I could see the look. It takes one to know one. And I think that's the thing. When you've experienced your own mental health issues and challenges, you, you can so spot someone else a mile off that is experiencing a challenge as well. And, it's, and, and I saw in her eyes, she went, I'm going to get the lift. I'm going to get stairs. And I thought, that's a real issue for her. But she clearly doesn't want to say it. And that's okay because that's her and her life. She doesn't need to. She doesn't need to tell me. She doesn't need to tell everyone else. I get it. It's personal. It's very private. Talking about fears and phobias, a very private experience. But I noticed in that moment, I thought, yeah, that's a real issue for her. I didn't bring it up. Not my business. She didn't bring it up either. It was clear something she didn't want to talk about. 
But a lot of us have these things. Another friend of mine has fears and anxiety around toilets, one being present, one being available, because they once accidentally nearly pooed themselves. You know, didn't happen, but they worry about it and it does affect where they go, you know, and it's it's really common. And I think anyone listening to this now, you don't have to tell everyone about it if you don't want to. Of course, keep it completely personal and private if you, if you choose to. But if you do open your ears and your eyes, you will find you're not alone and everyone's got their thing. And I think as you do, you have to just say to yourself, well, what is the worst that can happen? Um, because I think sleep is a very, very common one. I certainly get that. So I get very anxious if I hadn't had dinner by a certain mm. time, then I know that I'm not going to have time to digest my food, which, and then I know I'm not going to have time to like wind down. Oh, so this whole you're evening my sister. routine. You're my sister <laughs> in anxiety. Same. It's, I'm the same. I'm like, oh God, oh God. It's like you do the countdown. And he's like, oh, some of my good friend, Paul, who I do celebs go dating with, he always says to me, he's like, Anna, your currency is time. And I was like, it is. I mark my life in time. And like, I have to learn to be a bit more flexible around that. But it's hard, isn't it? It's really hard because I know if I'm not eating by 7.30, then I like to elongate my dinner because that's what helps me. Like That's my calming sort of moment to myself in the day. And then it kind of all becomes a rushed ritual. And then I'm really pissed off with myself because I'm like, oh, if only that person hadn't been half an hour late and that person hadn't been 15 minutes late, then my whole day would have been, like, you know, oh, but yeah. So like you, I run on these very stringent time schedules. And then if I'm not in my bath by 10.30, then it means I'm not going to be in bed by 11. And then it means I'm not going to be able to read for like 20 minutes. Yeah, I mean, and it is so funny and how some tiring. of our brains. Yeah, and it's tiring. Like I had a, the great pleasure of hosting an event with Ruby Wax uh, last week. And, you know, Ruby Wax is very poster woman, isn't she, for mental health. And we were just talking about, you know, she was saying, you know, people with mental health challenges, you know, are the most resilient people it's like the opposite of what people i think give the label of like oh oh they might be oh. it's all the opposite i think anyone that lives with mental health challenges is one of the most strong and resilient people in the world because we are fighting all the goddamn time like we're fighting our brains our heads our thoughts and you know i think i really do i think like i think i don't know what we're talking i think we we're talking about employment or something around employment um my god i would totally like look at the positives in people that struggle with their mental health you'll often find most people are trying their goddamn best to just survive because they don't have time to sit on their laurels they've got to keep going hurt to healing has partnered with brown advisory to bring you this podcast brown advisory a global investment management firm is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Anna, I'd love for you to talk about panic attacks. So how does a panic attack come on and what does a panic attack entail? Yeah, so different to anxiety in the sense that anxiety tends to be gradual and it's kind of a slow burner, you know. But a panic attack, you know, really can come on at any time for any reason. I mean, and this is what's happened to me. They can be absolutely terrifying because they are all-consuming and you don't know in that moment what the hell has happened to you. All you know is that you are terrified they are intense physical sensations as well that accompany a panic attack. Often it can feel like having a heart attack. A lot of people actually do get 
admitted to A&E thinking they're having a heart attack and actually it's a panic attack. I can relate to that. I've never quite made it to A&E, but definitely thought that I need to call 999, like something's going wrong. There's almost this feeling disassociated with your body. Like you just sort of feel like almost an out-of-body experience. I feel one can feel fear because there are so many different symptoms around it, but I think I have most of the typical ones. There is a fear of losing control, a fear of, of death, a fear of something really bad happening fight or flight or freeze kicking in your your response for me it's it's always flight i want to get the hell out of the situation i'm in i think the the terrifying thing about panic attack i think it's a horrible name panic attack because despite its very name label panic attack i mean two of the worst words in my in my book breaking mad inside's guide to conquering anxiety i talk about reframing that like i'm a big fan of reframing words because just saying the word panic attack kind of half wants to give me one um, because they can come on so shockingly and so suddenly and we don't know why. So when I was having my panic attacks, I don't really ever have them much anymore because I'm so tuned into my body to ensure that my anxiety and stress levels don't reach a level where I'm in that kind of danger zone where a panic attack can kind of hit. Panic attack is you are fueled with adrenaline around your body it's like you run you know run a 100 meter marathon and essentially that does come back to you know our ancestors our caveman days you know where we need we needed that level of fight or flight to escape intense threat but we don't have any need to use that up anymore in modern day society we don't need to run away from a saber-toothed tiger or whatever we we don't need it but but we still have the function but they can be absolutely terrifying but the main thing to recognize and to realize and which helped me when i understood what the hell they were because i was like what even is this it's just an intense response to um stress anxiety fear of perhaps or you know something would typically be brewing in your brain on your mind your body and stress always has an outlet some people have stomach ulcers you know, some people have panic attacks, some people get migraine, some people get desperately ill. But that's essentially what a panic attack is. It's an intense burst of fear, which and adrenaline, which just needs to get out of the system. But in that moment, it can feel absolutely horrendous. And it should never, ever be trivialized for someone that experiences one, because I know myself, I've honestly welcomed death over panic attacks when they can creep up and for me they they have a very physical feeling they they start sort of in the pit of my stomach and they it's like a poker hot whoosh that comes up my body my chest constricts my throat typically when you have a panic attack they're so physical you're through the very reason that your body sort of momentarily shuts down uh like your bowels can go you might want to poo yourself you might need to wee you might suddenly feel like going to be sick you'll get sweaty palms and that's because your body has just gone into kind of shock state basically so yeah they can feel physically horrendous but the great news is and this is what i always like to leave people with a panic attack alone has never killed anyone and a panic attack will typically never last more than 20 minutes it will grow it will peak it will absolutely fire and then it will ebb away and it will flow and you will feel knackered after that panic attack and that's okay because there's a real physiological reason why because your body has just fired so much adrenaline around your body that like anything it needs to seep away and it needs to reset and you need to get back to a place of homeostasis. So typically when someone's had a panic attack, be kind to them, be kind to yourself, let them sit and relax for 20 minutes, give them a glass of water to replenish their dry mouth and let them know that it is tiring and it will be okay and they will be okay. But yeah, they're bloody awful. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I mean, it's, yeah, they sound horrendous. And I, I think 
they can, as you said, they can be completely paralyzing. And it's when you know, though, I think it makes them less scary because I think over time, if you don't resist them as much from from what I understand from my own experience, it's like you just, you let them be and you're like, okay, right, this is going to happen. I'm just going to go with it. Spot on. And that is exactly the right thing to do. And actually, I love having visual images when I talk about mental health and coping. And I always imagine a panic attack like a, a petulant child, a toddler that's about to have a tantrum. And I, I know this because my kids can kick off. And it's like once they've gone and once like they have gone past the point of return, you just got to let them go because there's nothing you can do. When they are in the middle of Tesco and they are absolutely going for it, hell for leather, in that moment, all you can do is just make sure they're safe and ride it out. Literally, there's nothing else you can do because the more you grapple with them, the more you pick them up and try and pull them away, the worse it's going to get for everyone involved. You have to just surrender yourself to it for that moment. And that's the same with the panic attack. It's a petulant child, a toddler. And the more you try and keep that lid on it and go, no, 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 please don't come, shit, 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 the more it's going to go, F you, I'm going to come bigger and better and stronger and it's going to get you anyway. Best thing you can do is face it head on and go, go on, you bastard. Give it your best shot. What are you going to do? You're not going to kill me because I know that for sure. So go on, you bastard. Give me that panic attack because guess what? You're going to be gone in 20 minutes. So go on, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. And guess what? It's never, ever, ever as bad as it would have been. Is that the best you got? You know, it come is. on. I'm literally, like, is that, I'm literally like, what? Is that the best you've got? And it's almost like, listen, you fucker, you're not going to get me because I've beaten you before and you're not going to embarrass me in that situation. And you know, and I have been in moments where it is a highly like stressful situation. Like, I think I talked about this long ago. I think I did Steph's Pack Lunch, the Channel 4 show. And again, it came out of nowhere. And I was just like, bloody hell. Like, and it was probably the anticipation around, I was talking about my new book at the time. And I literally sat in the middle of this ad break, knowing that we were about to come out of the ad break and on me, and I could feel it rise. And I could feel the bastard coming on. And I was like, are you kidding? I've not had one of these in two years. And in that moment, the temptation is to go, oh, no, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Don't, don't happen, don't happen, don't happen. I'm on live telly. And then in that moment, because I've had so many, I've got used to them, got my breathing under control. It's the best thing and the quickest thing you can do in that, in that moment is get your breathing under control. Because the, when we are anxious and having panic attacks, typically breathe really shallowly. We're breathing in that top section of our throat. <laughs> so we're not taking in enough oxygen. Guess what happens? I'm even doing it now. Suddenly my chest is feeling tight. I'm feeling a bit anxious and I'm grappling for breath. I'm then going to feel panicky. Get that breathing back under control. Slow and make sure your out breath is longer than your in breath and you will start to regain that control. And you know what? Sometimes you just even have to just name the elephant in the room. Shit, I'm feeling a bit panicky right now. That's bad timing. I mean, I didn't say that at the time because I did manage to get it under control. But I do think I'm at a point where I probably would say that because what can you do in that moment? What I've learned through experience is no one's going to go, <laughs> gutted, you just had a panic attack. No one is going to say that. They're all going to go, oh my God, are you okay? What do you need? And I think that's really important to remember. Like no one... No one asks to feel as they feel. You just do. Yeah, no. And it's, they're really hard because I think they can strike you from left, right and center. And really, as you say, they can come out of the blue at times when you're least expecting them. But have you found over time that you can predict when you're going to get one and have they sort of abated in their frequency? Yeah, absolutely. And that is really listening to me, listening to my mental health, my physical self, health, 
And, I, you know, I do believe in, you know, a 360 holistic approach. You know, it's like, you know, whatever, as that sounds, but it is really important. I know that if my nutrition is, it, it's all about prevention and early intervention is for me. And that is absolutely how I have not only rapidly reduced, but pretty much eradicated panic attacks bar the phobia issue I have with the whole being trapped thing. But even that, I'm learning now to rein back. And in every time I have a success, I really make sure I, you know, mindfully embody that feeling of the success. Yes, I did it. I didn't get a cab. Because what you're doing is building up more trust and evidence in your body that's telling you in your mind that I can do this and it's fine, it is okay. And the more that will outweigh the what if it doesn't. But yeah, I typically... Now, I know that I can't shortcut myself. I have to stick to my rules. I have to eat well. I have to sleep well. I have to have good people around me. And I have to be not ruthless, but I have to make sure, you know, sure, we give and take in relationships, friendships, whatever. But, you know, have have the good people around you, more of the good people and cut out the mood hoovers. You've got to have good people around you that, that bring you up and that make you feel good and trusted and loved. And I think what I've learned over the years is that some friendships have just naturally come to a bit of an end because there are perhaps different attitudes in life now, different values, which don't serve mine. And quite honestly, ones where I think I felt inferior and that's not a place that makes me feel comfortable. So I'd rather choose to be around people that make me feel comfortable and, and hopefully I do them. So for me, it's all about the due diligence, putting the work you know, I need, I've got kids, that's hard because you cannot step off the treadmill of parenting. And that in itself is an anxiety trigger because it can be really overwhelming making sure that two human beings are alive and you are responsible for them. But even that, you know, it's knowing what do I need in order to be a good mom? Well, I need time for me. I do. I have to. Otherwise, I'm a crap mom. So it's unashamedly making sure that I make provisions for my husband to step up my in-laws and childcare support I'm fortunate enough I know a lot of people don't have that but even I've got some great mum friends now through my children and just saying do you know what can we kind of like do a tag team here I really need just like an hour of going to the gym or an hour of just sitting in my lounge with a cup of tea with no one asking me to wipe their ass can we do that for each other you know and that has started to kick in and it's really important because it helps keep your mental health tip top and as a result it keeps the panic attacks at bay because the stress levels don't reach those horrific highs yeah, and presumably that also helps with the anxiety. I mean, just general day-to-day anxiety. And I think, as you said, so much of it is just knowing what works for you and being quite assertive in that. And I think that gets easier with maturity and age because I think when you're in your 20s, it's, it's quite hard asserting yourself and being different and being the one that doesn't drink and goes home early or, or whatever you decide to do. But I think, yeah, as you get older, all those things, it becomes more evident that to other people, right, that's she's doing her thing. And, and that's if you're assertive and confident in that and again that goes back to not carrying around the shame and judgment and being surrounded by radiators as you said rather than I love that mood hoovers I'm going to use that <laughs> mood hoovers yeah but it, but it, it, it is and you're right about maturity um, having a huge part like I'm, I'm 42 now and I, I've genuinely never enjoyed my life as much as I do now because I just feel a lot more settled. Like, I mean, God, if this is what it's like at 42, what's it like at 84? You know what I mean? I won't argue I'm zero Fs. Do you know what I mean? I will be that old lady. I'll never forget an old lady. I once got on a bus in London. I lived in London. And she literally barged me out the way. I would have let her go anyway. You know, I like to think I've got manners. 
but she literally elbowed me out the way in the front of the bus queue and she just went, age before beauty, dear. And I just thought, that <laughs> level of giving zero Fs, I can only aspire to. But I do think you do. And I, and I also know that the more assertive that you are, the less of it being, this is what I say to people, don't let it be a question for someone to have an opinion. Um, like, I don't know if I'm going to stay out late tonight. That's a question and it's ambiguous. Why not? Stay out. Don't be a fanny. It leaves it open for judgment and opinion. You don't want the opinion. Well, assuming you don't, maybe you do want the opinion. But if it's because it's for self-care reasons, I'm coming out tonight. I'm going to be leaving at 11. But you know what? I'm going to have as much fun as I can between now and then. That's it. It's not open for discussion. You don't want an opinion. And if someone gives you some shitty, shady remark, well, I would question really their ability to have fun by themselves if they really need you that much to be the fun brigade. Then take it as a huge compliment. Clearly, you're that fun that they don't want you to go home. Anna, I'd love to ask you a bit about relationships and whether you think that people who have anxiety or other mental health issues can be in healthy relationships or whether one has to come to peace with your mental health issues to be in a balanced, healthy relationship. It's a great question. I, I say if people with mental health issues weren't fit to be in relationships, I don't think there would be any. I really do. <laughs> the beauty to remember, you know, we all know this, you know, it's trotted out now, you know, all the time, you know, we all have mental health. And, you know, the, the statistic, uh, I'm a mind ambassador, you know, one in four of us will experience a mental health issue at any one time, but we think it's actually a lot higher than that. It's about self-awareness and everyone's got their thing. You know, everyone's got things going on. You know, some people have mental health challenges, some have physical health challenges, some have emotional challenges, some have financial challenges. You know, everyone's, you know, I, I've yet to have met a person who is, you know, just like, oh, you know, it doesn't exist. And actually, I think particularly when you have mental health challenges, the key is to really be aware of it be responsible about it to yourself look after yourself you know you have a responsibility to look after yourself because if you are going to be in a partnership you can't expect your partner to look after you 100% of the time you know a partnership and relationship is reciprocal but there's no you don't have to be fixed to be in a relationship you know some people have horrific heartbreak you don't have to ever be fixed but it's about being transparent and it's about doing your best and it is about communicating your feelings and who you are and what you need in order to function as a healthy happy human being and as a happy healthy partner so I mean I have mental health issues you know I'm in a relationship I've been with many people that have subsequently had either depression or you know I, I know or, or OCD or you know all kinds of, of things going on or, or coping with loss and bereavement you know all of these things can challenge us at any one time so in answer to your question, absolutely, if you have a mental health issue, you can be in a very fulfilling relationship. The key is about being honest and transparent, taking care of yourself and communicating with your partner to letting them know what you need and in turn, letting them, asking them what they need from you. Dating is something that I definitely avoided because I think, yeah, when I was really unwell with an eating disorder, I think that brings in a whole other layer of, of complexities. But I think actually when you get to a place where you're a bit more at peace, and of course, you know, who doesn't, as you so rightly say, who doesn't have mental health issues? But I think when you're not in that critical headspace, 
and you're starting to see like glimmers of light and you're starting to have more of a life, you can let someone in, but it's accepting that you can let that person in because I think you're you're fed this narrative in society that until you love yourself, no one else could possibly love you and you couldn't possibly be in a healthy relationship. No, and that's so not I true. Sit there. <laughs> someone can help fix you along the way. We're all working along the journey together. Okay, so I need to put myself out there a bit more. Definitely, <laughs> because you're amazing as you are. You know what? I have so many people, even people that are close to me, that you know. I have a there's a, a gentleman that's very close to me. You know that says, I know they'd suffered with previous addiction issues. You know, and and are fine. You know, have have accomplished them brilliantly, but have you know some levels sort of, of agoraphobia and anxiety disorder still present. And oh, who would want to date me? You know, in fact, and I was like you're viewing what you've been through in such a negative lens. Let's look at what actually that tells me about you if I were to date you. My God, firstly, where the hell did you get all that resilience and strength to beat an addiction for a start? You know, and the humility and the empathy that he has for people is extraordinary because he's been at a place in his life where He's properly felt shit. And actually, when you have been through those tough times, they just shape us and give us depth and richness, actually, that I think it would be so ignorant for someone that perhaps hasn't experienced mental illness to tap into and be curious about how that person, you know, has got to where they are now. But you've made a great point. The point of dating is when you are out of a critical place, because if you are in a critical place where you're having either a relapse or you are in an intense eye of the storm, you are not going to be any good to yourself, let alone anybody else. And it would be an unfair situation for yourself and for somebody else. But yeah, when you're on the path of recovery, why shouldn't you invite someone into your life if they are? Everyone is a consenting adult. And if you want to disclose when it feels appropriate, timing's also key that you've had some challenges and they are open to hearing what those challenges are. They will make their judgment call. And here's the thing, everyone, it might go, it might not go in your favor. And that's just life, unfortunately. Everybody will have an opinion, but actually that is their right to have an opinion. And some people, and I've met many people that have turned people aside because they've had a mental illness. And I think that's such a goddamn shame because you have actually probably just cast aside someone who could be the greatest love of your life because what you haven't done is seen all their incredible qualities because you let one thing cloud your judgment. And I think that then says more about that person, not the other. I know. I mean, if that's the case, can you imagine what my chances are having done this podcast? I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be labeled forever as the girl with sort of <laughs> the health warning on her head. Not at all. I would look at that in such a different way. And I think that it's about really reframing what has from the dawn of time been so shrouded in negativity as a stigma, you know, mental health, you know, mental illness. Oh, you know, that was from a great auntie doodah that had been sectioned in 1952. Do you know what I mean? You know, we're in a different space and different age now. And, and we need to be because it is ignorant for us to think that somebody who is experiencing an anxiety disorder, OCD, wouldn't be the most wonderful partner. At what stage do you think in a dating process should you confide in the partner that you're struggling with mental health issues? I mean, I think particularly with the advent of dating apps and things, when should you confide in that person? Okay, well, I do struggle with X, Y, and Z. So at, at what time? That's a really, really great question. And I don't think there is any bog standard catch-all answer to that. Some people say to me, you know, should I put it in my dating profile? You know, should I put it in my bio? You know, do I want it? And I'm like, listen, you do you, honey. Like, 
there are some people out there, huge mental health campaigners that probably would open up their, you know, dating bar going, I am, you know, so pro, you know, talking about mental health, you know, that's cool. If that's what's really important to them. But obviously you need to think about who you want to attract, you know, who do you want to meet? I would say typically it's how personal it feels to you. If I was back on the dating scene, I'm not, I'm married, um, but if I was and someone didn't know who I was or what I was experiencing, I'm very happy and open about what I experienced because guess what? That's just me. You can't hide it, you know. It's only going to come out. But I think I would maybe a date in, maybe a couple of dates in, if there was clearly a spark, some rapport kicking in, I would weave that into the conversation fairly early because it's a part of who I am. And I would also want to, this taps into values, I would also want to see how that person received that information. And you'll often find it, you know, with people, and it's all about, you know, gauging rapport. But if they balked at that and were like, oh God, and then ghosted me, well, then that's a shame. But that's not a reflection on me. It's just a reflection that that's not quite what they're looking for or they feel comfortable in that space. Maybe it's triggering for them. Do you know what I mean? Maybe they've been with someone that it before that it didn't work out very well or maybe they had a parent that had a, a mental illness and they, they've got, you know, do you know what I mean? There's, there's often a reason and you don't have to find that reason if it's not important to you and if it hasn't carried, but there's often a reason. But then if that person accepted that, I went, oh my gosh, like, thanks for letting me know that. It's really interesting. I'm curious about it. Amazing. So I would say you have to judge that situation for every single person. But I think the important thing is that you feel comfortable first and foremost with giving over that piece of information about yourself and knowing that how it will be received is the unknown. I know. And I think for me, it's such a big part of who I am. And it's been such a big part of my journey. And it's got me to where I am now to, to hide it for so long would just be, it would just feel so wrong on many levels. Yeah. Well, but also you have such a wonder, like already now, like if I was going on a date with you, I would be so curious about it, but I would also, you know, this is where kind of the art of conversation comes in. You know, I would want to know, do, do you want to talk about it? Is it, you know, how important is it to you? And then be led by that. You know, a, a, a good conversation in dating, you know, is all about, it's like a tennis match. You know, if you brought that information to the forefront, so there's something, you know, or you weaved it into conversation or actually, you know, I suffer with OCD, blah, blah, blah. Naturally, I'd go, oh, wow, I'm, that's, that's really interesting. And I'm really curious, you know, how does that manifest? You know, and then depending on how you replied, but you could also say, you know, I don't really like talking about it much, but, you know, so you can judge that in those conversations and those conversations will organically evolve depending on how, it's like bids. You give a little bit of information, they give a little bit of information and then you'll judge how important a thing that is. You know, it may or may not be like, my anxiety disorder has just never been a thing with my husband. You know, I got together with him uh, I think he knew quite well it was a thing because I harped on about it a lot. But it's just been there. It's just a part of who I am. And an anxiety disorder. And it's never been a negative impact on me. Anna, what three tips would you like to leave listeners with who are struggling with anxiety? Oh, bless. First thing is to just go easy on yourself. Okay. It's normal. You are normal. I hate using the word normal. But we all suffer from anxiety. Okay. The second one is really take a pause and look at your life and what you can change or do differently, even if short term, to reduce the level of stress and anxiety you are experiencing. There will be stuff going on in your life that is causing this, whether that's relationship issues, personal, interpersonal, doing too much stuff. What is it that you can change? Okay. What can I change to reduce that? 
And thirdly, I would say delegate, reach out for help. What do you need from other people in order to help you? Do you need, for example, it kind of feeds into two really, but you know, sometimes so if my anxiety is playing up and I've got a full day of meetings, I might just need to say to my manager, look, do you know what? I'm just feeling a bit today. If it's nothing that important, do you mind if we scale back and then delegate? Yeah, no problem. I get it. Let people help you. Tell them what you need and it should hopefully reduce the anxiety. And just don't be afraid to ask for help because too many people feel embarrassed and you really shouldn't. And lots of people, as you say, bandy it around. Oh, that anxiety. Yeah, some people do. I'll be honest with you. Some people do use it as a bit of a card in inverted commas. Some people do think it's a bit of a get out of jail easy fix, you know, which is a goddamn shame for the rest of us that really are suffering. But you know what? Like everything in life, you'll always get the the gen articles and and the ones who are trying it on. Just be true. Just be authentic. You can't go wrong. Anna, it's just, oh, I could talk to you for hours. You pepper everything with such humor and you're so articulate. And it's just, yeah, a joy to talk to you. So thank you so much for taking the time today. It really is my absolute pleasure. Honestly, I really enjoyed it today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Thank you.